Father, I think it is good for us just to sing these songs to remind us that you are all that we need. When we are in your presence, that is all that we need. It's good to be reminded that you are mighty to save. That you have a beautiful name and that life is, it's all about you. Thank you for loving our souls. Now open our eyes. Please speak through me as I surrender to you to build your body. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Take a seat. We're going to talk this morning about something that I thought I would never, ever, it's never in my mind that I would even be talking about this morning, but we're going to talk about, of all things, Noah's Ark. <laughs> okay? I'm going to begin, though, with this. Can you tell me what this is? The Titanic. The RMS Titanic. You know that there was another ship made alongside it called the Olympic? Did you know that? Well, the Titanic was the largest ship afloat at the time she entered service, and of course, in April of 1912. She was 882 feet 9 inches long, with a maximum breadth of 92 feet 6 inches. Her total height was 104 feet. This is a big ship. She measured 46,328 gross registered tons. I have no idea what gross registered tons is. All I know is that it is large. Okay, and it took about 26 months to build the Titanic. Uh, The sheer size of Titanic posed a major major engineering challenge for its builders, Harland and Wolf. Well, well, why? Here's the key. No shipbuilder had ever before attempted to construct vehicles this size. They simply weren't building ships that big. And that was just over about, what, 100 years ago? And this is a picture of the Titanic, actually, uh, on April 10th, so it's five days before she sank. Now, when news arrived on her maiden voyage on April 15th, 1912, actually it was the night of April 14th, which she sank on the morning of April 15th, that the Titanic had been damaged, of course, by an iceberg, Um, Mr. A.S. Franklin of the International Mercantile Marine Company sent a telegram. Here is a telegram. Who is A.S. Franklin? I didn't know who he was. looked it up. But what the International Mercantile Marine Company, through J.P. Morgan as well, financed this. Okay? So here is what the famous telegram, the vessel unsinkable. And look, starting right here. We have nothing direct from the Titanic, but are perfectly satisfied that the vessel is unsinkable. The fact that Marconi messages have ceased means nothing. It may be due to atmospherical conditions, the coming up of the ships, or something of that sort. We're not worried over the possible loss of the ship, as she will not go down. We are sorry for the inconvenience caused to the traveling public. 
We're absolutely certain that the Titanic is able to withstand any damage. She may be down by the head, but would float indefinitely in that condition. That's the actual telegram that was sent by Mr. A.S. Franklin of the International Mercantile Marine Company. Of course, we all know what happened. A little bit more about that later. If your Bibles turn with me to Genesis chapter 6. Starting in verse 13, we'll go through chapter 7, verse 5. Now, do you want to know what an actual unsinkable boat looks like? Let's see what the Bible says about the ark. I think you'll find some interesting things that you didn't know about it. And we begin by talking about, we'll just look at this verse by verse for the most part, um, the reason for judgment. Verse 13, Genesis chapter 6, verse 13. Then God said to Noah, the end of all flesh has come before me, for the earth is filled with violence because of them, and behold, I am about to destroy them with the earth. Now, of course, why is he doing this? What's the first four verses of Genesis 6 tell us? Those angels left their boundaries, cohabitated with the daughters of men, okay? And, and in it, it, we believe that probably because mankind thought that they could avoid the curse of death, agreed to this, and they were creating this offspring, and they were just flesh still, still just man, and God had seen enough. We talked about how depraved humanity is, how things had gotten so bad that the, the thoughts, the imaginations of his heart were only evil continually, and the earth was filled with violence. And God... In, and hear me clearly on this, God has patience, but it has a limit. In this regard, it had been roughly 1,530 years he'd give them since the creation to repent and to change. They didn't, as though he'd had enough. And in grace, he gives them how many more years before he will actually destroy the world with a flood? 120. But he says, the end of all flesh has come before me. The earth is filled with violence. I'm going to destroy them with the earth. A couple of things I want to point out real quickly here for this, the reason for judgment. That this is the grace of God still. Noah and his wife and three sons and their wives deserve to perish. If you were alive at this time, you would deserve to perish. They're still corrupted to the very core of their being by sin. And we know, what we know now of Scripture, that it's only by God granting them the faith, the ability even to believe in him, in a coming redeemer who would crush the head of the serpent, that they are saved. They're saved by faith, and that is it. The second thing you see in this verse I just want to point out is that man is held responsible. What God was about to do was so severe, and this is rare in the Bible, by the way, that he begins by giving Noah the reason for his drastic judgment up front. God will destroy all flesh on the earth with the earth. Well, why? Because man's sin, because of man's sin, the earth is filled with violence. Now watch this. All flesh is affected. Phrase all flesh refers to not just 
man, but animals as well. In fact, every land-breathing animal, not the fish, but the land-breathing animals. It's, I want you to see that in this passage, that sin always has far-reaching consequences, because all through the end of all flesh on the earth, including animals, birds, and insects, will perish. I'm kind of okay if insects will perish. I'm not a big fan of insects. <laughs> okay? Anybody else get freaked out when they see a spider in the wall and you turn on your, your light light or you're walking? And, uh, yeah, that's not me. But I'll have to have a long conversation with God when I see him. Why in the world do you create insects? <sighs> okay, so that's the reason for judgment. Now let's talk about what I call the rescue uh, for judgment. Verse 14, make, your, make for yourself an ark of gopher wood. By the way, we don't know what gopher wood is. Okay, no one does. And you shall make the ark with rooms and shall cover it inside and out with pitch. Now, here's the thing that I think that might be interesting for you to, if you didn't know this. The word ark in the Hebrew, it's the word tebah, T-E-B-A-H. It means box. It means box. It does not mean boat or ship. The only other time this word is used in the Bible is to describe the box or the ark that baby Moses was on as he floated down the river. Remember that story? Now, popular recreations of Noah's ark can be found even in our time. Perhaps the most recent and famous one is found in Kentucky at the ark encounter, and it looks like this. Ever seen it? We were there, right? We've been there. This is what you will see. You can walk in and go in there and so on. And that is a fairly biblical response to what we would or, or guess of what the ark per the dimensions would, be, would look like. Okay, here's another picture of it from a different angle. Okay. It's pretty big, isn't it? And here's another picture of it from, you kind of see the top and everything. Obviously, we don't think that they had these type of roofs back then, but who knows? Now, I want you to notice as well that in, that's, I think that's in northern Kentucky, right? It's that, yeah, it's, yeah. Um, there's no mountains. Notice that. We're used to them. It's, 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 there are the hills of Kentucky for sure. But now, while these pictures are fun to look at, um, just be assured that's not what God told Noah to build. He told him to build a big rectangular box. Okay? In fact, a chest might be another way to view it. It was not shaped like a boat or a ship with a thin bow to cut through the water when it was being propelled by oars or moved by the wind in the sail. It was not meant to be propelled or to move by the wind. Okay? There was no rudder to steer it. There was no captain to steer it, okay? It wasn't designed to sail or be propelled. It was designed to do one thing and one thing only, float, okay? Now, a more accurate picture of Noah's Ark would be this. I'll give you two pictures. This is, and these were drawings, but you kind of see this big box right here. See that? I don't know whoever made that picture up, but that would kind of be what it looked like, or maybe even this picture here. 
And all it was designed to do was to float, okay? Now, in it, it, verse 14 says that you're going to make rooms. This is interesting. The word rooms is actually translated, did you know this? Nest. So you basically build a boat, and in it were a bunch of nests. The idea being that God designed the ark for its occupants. Thus, the nest for many of these animals would be like dens or cages designed to house and protect. And if you look at the dimensions of the ark, if the maximum space between the decks was one-third of the total available, then each level of the three levels we'll get to in a minute here, they'd have roughly 12 feet of headroom in this ark. While with so many animals on the ark, there would be thousands of nests that were built. But the ark was sufficiently, according to calculations, large enough to carry two of every species of air-breathing animal in the world. And with the dimensions of the ark, Noah and his family may have had the entire third level for their own use. Do you know that? With each family having over 8,000 square feet available for themselves. Now, verse 15. This is how you shall make it. The length of the ark, 300 cubits. Its breadth, 50 cubits. And its height, 30 cubits. A cubit is, of course, if you didn't know it, roughly 18 inches from here to here. Okay? So it's 18 inches long. But we're talking about one big box. So the ark would be in feet measurements, 450 feet long, 75 feet wide, and 45 feet high. Now again, this may not be large by our standards of the massive ships of today, but again, I want to remind you, and this is why I opened up with the whole picture about the Titanic, the ark is the largest floating vessel ever built until the 19th century. The reason for this is, again, they could not until steel and iron became the material for building ships, and that happened in the 19th century. They simply just weren't making boats that big. And they even admit it themselves, you know, they just weren't making anything that large, even with iron, until you know, the time the Titanic came along. And even now, there are cruise ships that are far bigger than the Titanic. But in 1858, there was a massive ship by those standards at that time, built by, built called the Great Eastern. You can look it up if you want to online. It was 692 feet long. And at that time, was more than double the longest ship that had ever been built apart from the Ark. So 692 feet long, 83 feet wide, and 30 feet high. It was 19,000 tons. And that was five times the tonnage of any ever ship built since the Ark. Why am I sharing this information with you? Because up to this time in history, obviously, humanity only built what? Smaller ships, smaller boats. They never considered to build something big. And do you want to know why? This is, this is crucial to understand all this. Because of the ratio. What do I mean by the ratio? It is critical for a ship to be stable in the water. And stability comes from a very specific ratio. It either has to be six to one or an eight to one ratio in length and width. And as they built larger ships, they discovered that ratio still worked. 
So even to this very day, the 6 to 1 to 8 to 1 ratio is standard for building a ship. And isn't it interesting that the ark had a ratio of 6 to 1? Noah, probably not being a shipbuilder, and nobody ever having seen anything that big float, could have imagined that was maximum optimal stability. But God knew. When you start studying the creation and the flood and stuff like this, you come across the name over and over again of Henry Morris. He's an engineer and a scientist and a believer. He concluded that the ark would have had to have been turned completely vertical with the current dimensions that God gave. It had to be turned completely vertical before it could be tipped over. That's how stable it was. Its relative length, six times greater than its width, would tend to keep it from being subjected to wave forces because wave forces aren't that long. And even if it got sideways, there was no single wave force that could hit the total ship. Furthermore, it would tend, rather than going through the waves, to ride with the waves. And because of the sheer weight of it with all of its occupants, it would be virtually impossible to turn it over. And as a rectangle, it had more stability than any other form of construction. And see, a ship has a rounded bottom to move through the water, but that makes it vulnerable. Anyone ever see that movie um, in 2000? Oh my gosh, just lost it. Uh, with George Clooney and the, the Gloucesterman fishermen. What? Perfect story. Yeah, you see those ships going up like that and so on. And, that type, and eventually those things were hard to overturn and that was overturned by those huge waves. Think of those waves that they created in that movie, The Perfect Storm. And I can imagine that those would be tame compared to what was going on with the flood. But a square bottom sunk down, like the ark, it's almost impossible to overturn, no matter how great the waves. And also, this design gives it a third more cargo capacity than a similar ship with a sloping hull. With these dimensions, the ark would have a footprint of just under 34,000 square feet. And that is well over 12 times the footprint of an average house. Since it was constructed with three decks, it would have a total floor space of 101,250 square feet. Folks, that's more than 20 basketball courts. The total storage capacity would have been approximately just over 1.5 million cubic feet. That's more than the storage space of over 300 boxcars. And to be even more specific, the ark would be equivalent in volume to 522 standard American railroad stock cars, each of which can hold 240 sheep. And according to the Ryrie Study Bible, only 188 cars would be required to hold 45,000 sheep-sized animals, leaving three trains of 104 cars each for food. Noah's family in, in, in range for the animals, all of that. Today it is estimated that there are 17,600 species of animals, making 45,000 a likely approximation of the number of Noah might have taken into the ark. I don't know how they got those numbers. It was my understanding in this job there would be no math. 
Okay? But this is what the experts say. Verse 16, you shall make a window for the ark and finish it to a cubit from the top and set the door of the ark in the side of it. You shall make it with the lower, second, and third decks. Now, what kind of window are we talking about here? Is it a singular window as we think of a window? Well, the Hebrew word here used basically means it was a skylight. (laughs) Okay? Since it's implied that the ark had a covering, for example, a roof, 18 inches below the roof line was a window. And you know, I want you to think of it this way, and you saw it in those pictures. You've got the roof, right? It comes out, and it's got some pitch to it, so that the water rolls off it. And where the roof comes out and extends past the sides of the ark, there's an opening of 18 inches all the way around the ark. Like you're doing some houses, right, with an overhang? And obviously, those windows could be covered with some material because if you read the story of, of uh, Noah, when he would send out the birds, what would he do? He'd remove the covering, it says. So they create something that would cover it up. Perhaps the material could be rolled up or removed when the rain had stopped. But the window served as a way to do two things. It let light in, and it also helped with ventilation. You'd need a lot of ventilation with that many animals and humans in just over a year on a big ark, a big box. When Noah sat on a raven and a dove, he simply went to the window, pulled back the covering, and let the birds fly. God instructed Noah to build a door in the side of the ark. You saw it in some of those pictures. That's for obvious reasons, too, to allow entrance into and out of the ark. And of course, this must have been a very big door, right? To accommodate the larger animals on board the ark. Um, the question that, that arises is, once they were all in, humans and animals, how'd they close it, right? Right, a drawbridge, right? What we kind of think of, yeah. But that's not what the text says. I think this is cool. I thought the same thing. If you look at Genesis seven sixteen. It says, those that entered, male and female of all flesh, entered as God had commanded him, and the Lord closed it behind him. The Lord himself was there. The pre-incarnate Christ, as his creation entered the ark, he closed the door behind them, as if to make sure they were all safe before the catastrophic waters would engulf the earth. We have a loving creator who is personally involved in our lives and is concerned for our safety. Genesis 6, 19-21. In of every living flesh of all flesh, you shall bring two of every kind into the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female, of the birds after their kind, and the animals after their kind, of every creeping thing of the ground after its kind. Two of every kind will come to you to keep them alive. Verse 21, as for you, take for yourself some of all food which is edible, and gather it to yourself, and it shall be for food for you and for them. Now how could the ark have housed the millions of species of animals we know now exist? Well, the best answer, I think, is found in Leviticus, where you also find the word kind, and that really refers to families. In other words, there was probably not a male and female German shepherd. I have two German shepherds. 
There probably wasn't a German Shepherd animal on there, or a poodle, or a chihuahua, okay? Or probably not even, maybe even any dog. And for that matter, there's probably not a male and a female coyote, or a dingo, or a fox. But there was probably a male and female wolf. All wolves and coyotes and foxes and dingoes and dogs are from what family? The canine family. The DNA for the canine family is housed in wolves. Let's take birds, for example. It's interesting when you study this stuff. There's a guy named Dr. Ernest Mayer, one of America's leading systematic taxonomists. He said, lists that there's 8,600 species of birds in the world. Filtering that number down by the genus, we're left with 700 types of species. Noah was told to take seven each of the birds, required approximately 4,900 individual flying creatures aboard the ark. See how the number gets cut down? The species would come later as they would fill the earth. You apply that same logic to of limitations to cattle, beasts of the earth, and creeping things. So there wasn't, again, all different kinds of cattle. Maybe there's just one set of cattle, but what housed within that animal was the DNA. Okay? Genesis 7 verse 2 says this, You shall take with you of every clean animal by sevens, a male and his female, and the animals that are not clean too, a male and his female. Also the birds of the sky by sevens, male and female, to keep offspring alive on the face of all the earth. Well, why the clean animals? They were to die as sacrifices when the flood ended. Genesis 8, 20 tells us that's the first thing Noah did when he stepped out of the ark. Probably as an extra measure, five extra pairs were brought on the ark. And of course, folks, this reminds us that God had set up an animal sacrificial system as part of worship of him. What we read in the Jews and Moses and so on was going on way before that in that first society. And that that sacrificial system, of course, pointed to a future sacrifice. We know him as Jesus, the once for all perfect sacrifice for the forgiveness of sins. They would know him as what? The one who would come and crush the head of the serpent. The details of the animals used and the number of required sacrifices were not written down, by the way, until the time of Moses. But the people of the first society were well aware of God's sacrificial system. John Wad Morape, I have to say his name, it is a long last name. He wrote a book called Noah's Ark, a feasibility study. And if you ever want to go to sleep, either listen to my sermon or read this book. Okay? He evaluated all the opposition, possible configurations, assumptive issues, and technical analysis regarding the Ark. And he arrived at this conclusion. This is kind of the standard for all understanding the ark and how everything could work by this study. He says he arrived at this conclusion in regards to the animals on the ark. And this is what he came up with. See that? All mammals. All birds. All reptiles. And in my opinion, we could get rid of those. A total of just under 16,000 would have been on the ark. Okay? And where would they be staying? In their nests. 
on the ark, exactly. And by his calculations, John Wad Morape, the maximum floor space required under the most generous allocations would be a total to less than one half of the space available on the ark. As for feeding the animals, most likely the food was stored in the first deck, while the animals lived on the second deck. And there would be tons of food, but the dimensions of the ark were more than adequate. That being said, if you consider the nest rooms, the lack of activity for the animals, the absence of sunlight, especially for the first 40 days of rain, and that all animals are capable of reduced metabolic activity, such as what? Hibernation. The rocking motion of the ark caused by the waves, and just the overall palpable sense of danger the animals had to feel, most of the animals probably fell into some form of hibernation, which would, of course, what? Reduce the amount of food and the amount of care that would be required. Our two German shepherds, when we, it's 4th of July and all the firecrackers are going off, they are more than willing to go into our closet and lay down and not do a whole lot of anything. Now, let's look at the manner of judgment. Look at verse 17 of chapter 6. Behold, and he doesn't know this until now, I, even I, am bringing the flood of water upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life from under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall perish. Now, I just want to say this. I'm going to say nothing else about this section, but it's a universal flood. A universal judgment. It wasn't a local flood. It was a worldwide flood. It was discriminate, this judgment, meaning it was limited to those in whom is the breath of life on the earth. Except for those eight people in, in the fish, or the marine world. But it was also, it was universal, it was discriminate, and it was total. Its purpose, God's judgment, was to destroy all flesh from under heaven. In heaven, it's referring to the sky. That is the manner of judgment. And it's sobering when we read it. Now let's talk about the good part, the promise within judgment. Look at verse 18. But I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall enter the ark, you and your sons and your wife and your sons' wives with you. Now, why Noah? <laughs> why Noah? Well, it wasn't because he was perfect. Again, read ahead in Genesis 9, you'll find out he wasn't perfect. But why Noah? In other words, what kind of person, and this is really what I want to talk about this morning, escapes the judgment of God? Because that's really what we want, right? I want to escape the judgment of God. Well, one, first of all, is this. Look at Genesis 6, 8. What does it say? But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. When does somebody find favor in the eyes of God? You know? What does the Bible teach? Did God scan the earth and looked at Noah's life and say, I like that guy. I'm going to use him. No. When did Noah find favor in God's eyes? Before he was born. Before anything was formed. 
right? He was chosen before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless. That's election. That's what that phrase means. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Every believer, God chose you in eternity past. That's when you found favor in his eyes. The Lord looked over the earth and determined to be gracious, see, to Noah. It was nothing Noah did. It was simply the graciousness of God. And so Noah was chosen by grace, election. He was one who was also justified. Look at verse chapter 6, verse 9. It says, Noah was a righteous man. So the person who escapes the judgment of God is one who is chosen by grace. Number two, one who is justified by faith. Again, we are justified by our faith. Abraham what? Believed God and it was what? Credited to him as righteousness. That's what it means. Noah was a righteous man. He was given the righteousness of God because he believed. And what did he believe in? A coming Redeemer who would crush the head of the serpent. That's all they knew at that time. Look at chapter 7, verse 1. Then the Lord said to Noah, Enter the ark, you and all your household, for you alone I have seen to be righteous before me in this time. There was only one person that went out to eight people of all of the billions of people. That's how corrupt how evil, how violent that first society had become. No one has a righteousness of his or her own. No was granted righteousness by faith in the promise of God of a coming Savior who would crush the head of the serpent. How do we know that? Because Hebrew eleven seven says this, By faith Noah, being warned by God about things not yet seen, in reverence prepared an ark for the salvation of his household, by which he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness which is according to faith. Now, we also see this. You want to be someone who escapes judgment? You need to be elected, you need to be justified, you need to be sanctified. That's one who lives a holy life. Look at verse 9 again in chapter 6. He was blameless in his time. That's what it means. He lived a holy life. He didn't cheat on his taxes. He was faithful to his wife. He didn't abuse his children. He didn't, wasn't greedy. He didn't take advantage of people. He was blameless in his time. That's sanctification, living a holy life. And it's not just that, though. He, there's also perseverance, and this is what I find fascinating Again, verse 9, it says, Noah walked with God. Do you know how old Noah was when the flood came? I think he was 600 years old. I think it's reasonable in a conservative estimate to assume that Noah continued in the faith, continued walking with God for hundreds of years. That is perseverance. And that explains Noah's remarkable obedience. In Genesis 6.22, you can just listen to this, or you can look them up if you want to, it says this. 
Thus Noah did, according to all that God had commanded him. So he did. We see it repeated again in Genesis 7, verse 5. Noah did according to all that the Lord had commanded him. Look at verse 9. As God had commanded Noah. We know that God spoke to Noah in this section seven times. Noah never talks back. Noah doesn't say anything. All it says is he always does exactly what God tells him to do. Thus, continued obedience. That is the mark of a true man of God. That is the mark of someone who escapes the judgment of God. And finally, you have glorification. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, you take the Sunday school class, you'll know that that means a future hope. Okay, our future hope is through resurrection, we receive a glorified body to live forever. In a sense, we have a picture of that here. Because what happens in Genesis 6, 18? God says, I will establish my covenant with you. And then after the flood, in Genesis 9, verses 8 and 11, he says this. They just stepped out of the ark, and God says this. Then God spoke to Noah and to his sons with him, saying, Now behold, I myself do establish my covenant with you. And watch as this covenant is with his descendants, with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the cattle, and every beast of the earth with you. And notice here he doesn't mention the insects. Thank you, Lord. He does here. Of all that comes out of the ark, of every beast of the earth, see, through Noah, to all remaining flesh comes this covenant. Verse 11, I will establish my covenant with you, and all flesh shall never again be cut off by the water of the flood. Neither shall there again be a flood to destroy the earth. So what is God saying to Noah? You have a future. Through you, there's a future. There's hope. Through Noah, for generations to come, God is going to fulfill his original plan, and this original promise was given to who? Adam and Eve, right? Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, rule. And no matter what, God will never destroy the world with a flood. So who is the one saved from judgment? It's the one who is like Noah, graced by God's favor, justified by his faith in God's word, and thus declared righteous, one who lives a holy life, one who perseveres in living in a pattern of obedience, and one who has secured a future promise. Never turn in your Bibles all the way. It's the last verse you look at as we close this morning. 1 Peter 3. Okay? And we'll close with this in the story. Time has ceased because that clock is not moving and it's still 2.35. So Roger, if you're listening, change the batteries in that clock. Verse 18, 1 Peter 3.18, For Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which also he went and made proclamation to the spirits now in prison, who once were disobedient when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah, during the construction of the ark, in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through the water. 
corresponding to that, baptism now saves you. Not the removal of dirt from the flesh, but an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, Peter is referring to the events recorded in Genesis 6 here. The disobedient angels who were imprisoned in hell for cohabitating with the dars of men, well, we know now that they were visited by Christ between his death and resurrection. We know this because Paul, Peter references Noah in the construction of the ark and the saving of his family through the flood. And this helps us understand verse 21, which is the key. Look at verse 21 again. It says, corresponding to that, meaning this, saved through an ark from God's judgment for sin. That's what that means. What now saves you? It's not an actual ark like it was for them. It is what? Baptism saves you. Well, the question means, we have to ask is this, what does that mean? Does baptism save you? Well, no, because water baptism does not save you. That's what he says. It's not the removal of dirt from the flesh, but it's rather an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. In other words, you are saved by faith. And how does baptism save you then? Peter isn't referring to water baptism, but another baptism, when you are baptized into the body of Christ by the Holy Spirit. This is what the Spirit does when you believe in Christ. Now here's the key. In that same sense, Christ becomes an ark for you and for me, saving you and me and all of us from God's judgment. Do you catch that connection there? That's the corresponding to that part. Noah and eight people were saved through an actual wooden ark. We are saved in the ark of Christ. Edwina Trout McKenzie survived the sinking of the Titanic. Um, she passed away recently. Here is her story, and she's been asked to tell this over and over again, so here's her story. She says this, Whenever people ask me what I remember most clearly about that night on the sinking Titanic, I am hard put to choose. Yet sometimes I think it just might be the stillness. The stillness in the hymn we sang to blot it out. It's always struck me as ironic that on the night the iceberg ripped that long gash in our standard or starboard hull on April 14, 1912, the sea itself was serene. The air was frosty cold, but there was no wind, and the sky was crowded with stars, all brazenly large. It was calm aboard the Titanic. Two, long after the collision and an unreal attitude of nonchalant existed right up until the final moment we were told we should get into the lifeboats. And of course we were told it's only a precautionary measure, ladies. Only then, as we collected around the boats, was there jostling and pushing, even though none of us knew at the time that those boats could only take 1,178 people, and we were... 2,207 passengers and crew. Stand back, stand back. Be British, an officer barked. But the deck was sloping forward. Water was pouring into the Titanic's bow. I was just about to clamber into a lifeboat when a man stepped forward holding a bundle. Who will take this baby? 
he cried. Impulsively, I reached for it, and with, that, with the child screaming in my arms, I found a seat for us. Even as we rode away from the Titanic side, with distressed rockets booming and blazing above us, we did not think the ship would sink. For we will still believe that she was unsinkable. And all, it took about three hours for the Titanic to die. The, that last hour was a time of mounting terror as we watched what we could not believe. The ship's stern rising out of the water, hundreds and hundreds of men and women still aboard, an orchestra playing ragtime tunes, lights twinkling. When at last the Titanic stood straight up in the water, and by the way, I'll give James Cameron credit. If you watch the movie Titanic from 1997, it, don't you remember it? going up and all the lights and everything and so on. This is a pretty accurate uh, film about this uh, and these events. When at last the Titanic stood straight up in the water, tall and slender as a skyscraper, the master of arms in charge of our lifeboat, his name was Bailey, suddenly stood up, scream, he shouted at us, scream as though our noise would mask and nullify what was about to happen. There was no help we could give to those still aboard the huge sinking ship. Screaming, at least, was something we could do. And so it was that as the Titanic slid, roaring and rumbling into the water, we were all yelling. In the midst of death, we were filling our lungs with screams of life, like babies out of the womb. Then the stillness, that unforgettable silence, the oars of our boats trailed lifeless as our rowers slumped forward. All of us sank within ourselves, unable to speak, think, or feel. The baby whimpered in my arms. A low moaning rose from the women mourning husbands and children. We were exhausted, afraid, forsaken. Once again, Master of Arms Bailey got to his feet. His eyes flashed in the starlight, and his walrus mustache quivered as he said in the stillness, Please, I want you to sing with me. Sing now, all of you, please. And his deep, resonant voice rolled out with, Pull for the shore, sailors, pull for the shore. The men of the oars straightened. Here and there, a faint voice picked up the words. Cracked and quivering at first, the voices seemed to draw strength from the old church hymn that so many of us had learned growing up in England. With that hymn, we were God's people again, each bending to his or her task, trying to make others comfortable, soothing the children, consoling the bereaved, doing what had to be done throughout the remainder of the night. When morning came, so too did the rescue ship Carpathia, and soon we were safe on her decks. The baby I had held in my arms, safe in his mother's arms again. I was 27 years old, the the Titanic sank, an unmarried young woman on her way to live in America. The memory of that disaster had never left me for as much as a day, but it has not been as ugly to recall as some might think, for one can always bring something good out of every bad experience. I learned that night to concentrate on living life. During those hours when death and life were suddenly so starkly delineated, I realized once and for all that there is no real certainty in man's world. Unsinkable ships do sink. Yet I believed then as I believe now 
that there is certainty in God's universe. When we sang that old, very familiar hymn, I was reminded that we in that lifeboat were among the living. And when one is alive, there is work to be done, oars to be pulled, shores to be reached. So it was that the Titanic taught me that I should never waste my time pondering the riddle of death, and I never do, for I'm too, for I'm much too busy accepting life. It's entitled A Faith Bolstered by the Titanic Tragedy by Edwina Trout McKenzie. She was saved from drowning, not in what was thought to be an unsinkable ship, but rather in a lifeboat. In essence, that's what Noah's Ark was, a very big lifeboat. And Noah stepped into the ark to rise above the judgment of God. We step into Christ, our ark, to rise above the judgment of God. And so the question is, you know, are you living like one who escapes God's judgment? That's the point. It's neat to know all the little details about the ark, but the scriptures point to over and over again the life of Noah and how he lived. We must live that way. Amen? Let's pray. Fathers, we end this time this morning. We thank you for the seriousness of your word, for the safety, the lifeboat that you provided for us in a picture of Christ in the ark, Noah's ark that you had him build, but also in the ark of Christ. And I pray that others, we would help others into this lifeboat of Jesus Christ. Step into him. Rise above the judgment of God. May that be a message that we carry to those in the lost and dying world. People without hope, without a future. In Jesus' name, we pray. Lord, we also ask that you would bless this food. Please use it to nourish our bodies and indwell our fellowship this afternoon, we pray. Amen.